Hi everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show where we discuss big questions that pop up as we're reading through the Bible, because that's what we're doing. We're reading through the Bible this year. Uh, we also aim to discuss and answer viewer questions, so questions that you send in to us via the comment section or email that you can find uh, on our website. So yeah, if this is your first time here, my name is Corey and I'm always joined by my husband, Matlock. Hey, Matlock. Hey, how are you doing? Good. How about you today? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. All right, so today we're discussing Second uh, Samuel 8 to 1 Kings 7. So that's pretty mm -hmm. exciting because we're getting into the life of David. Yes. Yes. Yes, and 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 uh, some uh, beginning this section of the, the kings of Israel and yes. Judah. So always really interesting. So that was our assigned reading for this weekend. So today our big question is, is going to be, how should we understand the Davidic covenant? But we're also going to be jumping in and discussing David's bizarre family. I mean, he had a he had a pretty rough, so we're going to be discussing that. We're also going to be taking a look at the length of David's reign um, and uh, even a bit of King Solomon's reign as well. So, yeah, do you want to just jump yeah, in to our first question? Yeah, for that's today? right. Let's do it. So I'll I'll open up, and this question is related to Second Samuel thirteen to fifteen. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if David was such a great king. Why was his family so messed up? And why doesn't the Bible criticize David for not addressing his family issues? Right. So two questions in one, but they're related. And I will say this off the cuff, is that it's not just his family that's messed up. David's kind of life starts off well, and it kind of starts crumbling after with Bathsheba and stuff like that. Yeah, he's yeah. guilty of adultery. He's guilty of murder. Um, but, we, but, but we also see... We also see David beginning to lose his grasp on the kingdom. I mean, as right. you read, we see his, I mean, that first part of the question, if David was such a great king, why was his family so messed up? So I'm assuming here that we're talking about, I mean, we see we, we see Amnon who um, rapes his sister, his half-sister, so David's daughter. So that's extremely messed up. And then we see David not punishing Amnon for that at all. And so uh, Tamar's full brother, Absalom, David's other son, uh, he ends up executing Amnon for that, which Amnon, um, you know, did deserve punishment and potentially even capital punishment based on the law that needed to be something that was brought before a judge in Israel, but it was not. Um, and but then Absalom goes on; he 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 moves on from murdering Amnon, his brother, and he he launches a full scale rebellion against David. But this isn't the only rebellion that happens amongst David's children. We see other sons of David also trying to declare themselves king before Solomon is finally officially made king. And we see a rift in, in David's leadership. The fact that Israel does back Absalom and there's this civil war, uh, you know, within Israel. So at the beginning of David's reign, you've got um, his, his reign over Israel and Judah together. You've got the people coming to David and making him king and, and really being united over this. And then by the end of David's reign, the kingdom is so fractured that David's has such a tenuous hold on it. So if David was such a great king, why was his family so messed up? I think that the text seems to indicate that David did not deal with the sins of his children. And we can speculate a lot for that. He does not seem to have brought discipline to his family. But also we can see that David multiplied wives. Uh, and, and when we look at the hints in the text, 
we can understand why. Now, multiplication of wives was outlawed in Deuteronomy 17 for the kings of Israel. The reason of this is not necessarily because it goes against the sanctity or the original intention of God's uh, idea of marriage, which it certainly does. We see, you know, in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve as the, and, and he inaugurates marriage. So one man and one woman in Genesis. And then we see in the gospels, Jesus going back to that model and saying, like, he, he, he backs that, you know, this is God's intention for marriage, one man and one woman for life without, uh, without any other, um, you know, experiences outside of that in terms of, you know, human sexuality. So that is God's plan for marriage. But in Deuteronomy 17, the rules for kings all have to all seem to have to do with where the king is putting their trust. And in the ancient world, kings got married for political reasons. And we see David doing this. So he has several wives um, that are described in Hebrew, not anything like Solomon. I think David just has seven wives. But we know, for example, he married Absalom's mother, who was a Gesherite princess. Now, Gesher was a land just north of the Sea of Galilee within the confines of what should have been the land of Israel. But the Israelites had failed to get rid of the Gesherites, to, to push them out of the land during the time period of the conquest, and had instead made covenants with them. So they were living in the land. So David, when he was fighting um, against the house of Saul for the control of Israel, he married this Geshurite princess. And what that would have done would have been to secure the, um, the political and military support of the land of Gesher and the king of Gesher to solidify David's kingship. So we see him doing this. So I would say that we could really draw out from the text that a huge portion of David's the familial problems came from the fact that he had gone against God's law and he had multiplied wives. And this really complicates the family. We see it back with Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. We see it with Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, and uh, the, the concubines of Jacob. And we see it here with David, the infighting between the children. So that's definitely one reason right. why David's family was so messed up. And I would say this too, to part to the second question, why doesn't the Bible criticize David for not addressing his family issues? The Bible doesn't criticize a lot of things that it frowns mm -hmm. upon. Like you have, everything's filtered through the eyes of the law at this point. Right. So it's like, if you know the law, Deuteronomy 17, these things, you would know that certain things aren't supposed to happen. And so therefore you get a you kind of, if you're reading the Bible carefully, you're kind of getting a grip with, oh, okay, well, David shouldn't have done that. Oh, David shouldn't have done that. And then looking at it through the eyes of the law, it's, you don't need to have the Bible be like, and David did this wrong every single time David did something wrong. Mm -hmm. Like it's just kind of implied, it's implicit. It's like he did something wrong because it already said earlier in the text that he shouldn't have done something wrong. Right. So I think that like, does the Bible criticize David for not addressing his family? I think it does. Right. I think it's implied in the text that he is doing things wrong. Like uh, I think it's Second Samuel 13. It even says David didn't deal with this with this when I think it was with the rape of his daughter. Yeah, he didn't deal with it, and it just says that, and it kind of is like a, it's like a sentence, I believe, and you're kind of like, oh, like he should have dealt with that. Like it's just it relies. It's a high context culture, which means that it relies on your personal understanding to fill in the gaps there. It's not a low con context culture, which means that you have to say every single detail. 
so that there's nothing left out. Mm -hmm. And it, it just assumes, the text assumes that you have some sort of conscious and grip on reality. Yeah. Some sort of common knowledge among, all right, of the text. Anyways. Yeah, there's different ways that the Bible criticizes, right? right. So sometimes the Bible records outright criticisms that happened uh, historically. So we see... Uh, uh, the prophet Nathan confronting David with the um, uh, several times. Once with the wise woman, when when um, sorry, Joab uses a wise woman to confront David in the text, and the prophet Nathan confronts David uh, as well for his um, for his murder and adultery. Uh, so there is outright criticism that the Bible records that actually happened historically, and then. Another way that the Bible criticizes is just by what it includes historically. We know that it doesn't include all of the things that David did while he was king. Uh, it doesn't, it, it, it just gives us a rundown of his life. So the things that it does choose to include are there for a reason. And it shows us the, the downfall of Amnon, of Tamar, and of Absalom, it shows us how David went from a king who was who was like chasing after God's own heart and trying to follow the law. It shows how he stopped following the law in several key aspects, and then it chooses to show all of the chaos that happened to David and how he almost lost his entire kingdom, except for the faithfulness of God. So it shows the progression of King David's life. It didn't have to show us that. It could have just summarized his life. It could have just not put in all of the unsavory details of Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, but it chose to do so anyway. So that is a criticism that, like you're saying, it's implied in the text. Right. Uh, in, and so that's a, a purpose that we have to draw out of that. Yeah, for sure. So it definitely does criticize David's decisions to not follow God, but... Uh, it it just doesn't record a moment where Nathan came to David and said, you should not be marrying all these women. You should be disciplining your children. Although it's possible that those things did happen, it doesn't record it in that way. It just records right. what happened and then the aftermath. And it's left up to us, the reader, to go, oh, wow, definitely don't want to do that. I, right. I, I want to live differently than that. And then also, too, it's, then you have to ask yourself, which is kind of a, in the next question on top of that. Okay, so why would the, t the text not explicitly address it. So for instance, when Ahab's evil or someone's being evil, it's like, and he was the most evil king. Right. right? It just, outright says this guy is just plainly evil and doesn't get, sometimes it gets into detail, sometimes it doesn't. So then you ask yourself, okay, so why is the text not a, a explicitly addressing it? Well, a lot of the times it's trying to draw you in more to, into the narrative more to, to guide you down a path and then it will ultimately address it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not going to address each time. It's going to be like, it was wrong and this was wrong. It's not just trying to give you, a, it's not just trying to be a moral rule book in this sense. It's giving you a history, it's painting you a narrative so that you can see through the context and the, the, the lens of the ancient world, like what is wrong here. And that's, it, you can't devoid moral problems from its greater narrative and context. So I think that's important too. It's not just about listing the, the do's and don'ts and the rights and wrongs. It's really about getting you into what this narrative is and the patterns of these guys' lives so you can fully understand the, the idea behind it. So I think it's just, it's also intentional a lot of the time. It's not just left out for the assumption also that you know the law. It's also trying to draw you in more to understand. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's my other point. Yeah, well, and, and also when you read through Kings and Chronicles, uh, 
you know, at, at the end of a king's reign, there's often a summary statement, like you were saying, with right. you, you um, kind of paraphrased the summary statement of Ahab's yes. reign, right? And not everything that they did is taken in, a, in um, is described, they're, they're, they're kind of graded on a scale. Even good kings, where it'll say, you know, this king was, was a good king, except that he didn't rid, uh, that he tolerated the high places, or right. he, he didn't get rid of the high places. Um, so, so there's this rating scale here for the king. So it's really, it, it, that in and of itself is interesting, um, where, you know, one sin does not in and of itself make a king good or bad, but they were judged more on a scale of how they shepherded and how they led Israel and Judah. And from that standpoint, from the standpoint of all those who would come after him, David was a very good king right? Um, because his whole life, uh, despite the drawbacks, he really was trying to follow God and and trying to, to to organize the kingdom around the worship of God rather than the worship of himself or the worship of false gods. Yes. So overall, he did pretty good. Right. He did pretty good, but he definitely made mistakes. Big mistakes, so, yeah. Yeah, big mistakes. All right, I'll ask you this. Oh, sure. All right, so this is related to 1 Kings <clears throat> 1 and 2, they're both chapters. Okay. Okay, so... Uh, Go there. Both books, I should say. I like the weekly updates that mm-hmm. review the uh, the weekly Bible topics done by your fine family. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. How long was David king of Israel? And so I forgot to mention this by Gary Clayton. Okay. YouTube. Hey, Gary. Um, yes. So for this, we have to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, which is where it, it gives a rundown um, at the beginning of David's reign. And it's and it's talking about when David became king over Israel. So at the beginning of David's reign, he was not king over all of Israel. He was only king over his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, and he ruled in the city of Hebron. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that he ruled in Hebron for seven years and six months just over the tribe of Judah, uh, and that he was 30 years old when he started that reign. So he would have been 37 and a half-ish when when um, the, the other tribes of Israel came to David and asked him, they accepted him as king over them as well. And so then David became king over united Israel and Judah, uh, and he reigned over that united kingdom for 33 years. So overall, he had a reign of just over 40 years. Just like a son. Yeah. Roughly about 40 years. Yeah. yeah that's good. Yeah. Well, so yeah. it was kind of split up, yeah. but... I think that's the answer. Uh, yeah, it is the answer. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, Second Samuel 5, yeah. again, is the is where you can find that. And I know it's not exactly like... It can be confusing because, um, you know, in the rest of the Kings and Chronicles, we know exactly where to find the king's reigns. It's either at the very beginning of the account of the reigns or the very end, which is generally right. in the same chapter. But with David, his story is so spread out and it's told a few different times. So right. Second Samuel 5 is where you can find All right. that. Thanks, Gary. Okay, do you want to answer this next question? Can sure. I ask you this next sure, question? Sure, we can sure, kind sure. of talk about it. Okay, this is from Dave and Marie. Okay. And they say, hi, Dave and Marie, first of all. They say this, we were wondering how to picture the mechanics of God speaking with Solomon. This is from 1 Kings chapter 3. Um, speaking with Solomon and emphasizing covenant terms. Do we know if Solomon, for example, experienced direct voice or prayer response or through other priestly contact? How did the Old Testament writers view this context um, through which God would reveal his plans to earthly leaders? Okay. 
Um, for one, okay, so a couple chapters to to take into consideration here. Mm-hmm. First Kings 3, mm-hmm. First Kings 8, yep. 9, and 11. So these are so, all instances where God speaks to yes, Solomon? Yes, or even when Solomon prays. So in, for example, mm-hmm. First Kings 8, Solomon prays on the dedication of the temple. Yep. And in First Kings 9, God responds to that. Yep. Uh, and so then that seems like a direct response. So unlike, let's say, uh, Na- uh, God speaks through Nathan, comes to David, mm-hmm. and he's like, look what you've done, right? Yeah. Uh, in this case, God seems like he's speaking directly to Solomon. And that's what you see in First Kings 3 as well. God meets him in a dream. He d- he's directly speaking to Solomon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, too, in First Kings 11, from what I recall, um, uh, when King Solomon starts walking away, God speaks directly to Solomon. Mm-hmm. So you have something really interesting here where... Solomon is not just, he is a prophet. Like he, he wrote books of the Bible. So God is speaking directly to him, which also makes his apostasy a little bit worse in a sense. Oh, yeah. Uh, not because great. it's not like he is someone who is just trying to live by the law to do their best. He's actually has a relationship with God in some sense. Um, so, yeah, that would be the answer to that part where it says, is it a direct voice or prayer response? And is it a, an, an, an audible voice that Solomon's hearing, or is it an internal voice? Um, you know, I don't know. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't say this, the difference. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it, it kind of mm-hmm. clarifies that, like, for instance, I think in um, the New Testament, uh, when Jesus is being baptized, people hear a voice of, people hear God speaking, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Some people hear thunder, and other people hear the actual words of God. Yeah. Which is fascinating. So it's like, you have some people who don't hear the words of God. They just hear thunder and they're like, whoa. Yeah. Uh, and so you have something there where it's like, okay, it's an audible voice. It's external of you, but it's not like everyone can hear at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I, maybe something like that's happening here where it's just. Well, I, I think I think with this instance specifically where where it says God it literally says God appears to sit to uh, Solomon yes. when he's sleeping. And then you you can compare that to Second Chronicles 1 verse 7, which says that night God appeared to Solomon. Yes. So I think it's safe to say it's in a dream, but because it said it says appeared, it was like he, 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 could, he could see him, he could speak with yes, him. Yes, right. So yeah, I think that, I mean, we're not given details as to what that looked like. Was it the angel of the Lord? Was it God? What, we don't, we're not given that, but right. we know that it was a dream. Right. As opposed to like a prophet coming to him or as opposed to the Urim and Thummim or yes. something like that. Because I think you can also go, what's really interesting is we we can know, thanks to First Samuel, we can know what kings of this time period expect, how they expected to hear from God. Uh, and there was three ways that they were expected to hear from God. Because in First Samuel 28, this is when King Saul... Uh, he ends up going to the witch of Endor because he tries to communicate with God in all of the biblically approved ways to communicate with God. And God is not answering him because he has been cast off as the king of Israel. His judgment is coming. He is under God's judgment at this point. So in 1 Samuel 28, verse 6, um, I'll go back to 5. So I'm going to read 5 and 6. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord. But the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. 
So the three ways that at least Saul and these early kings of Israel expected to hear from God was by the priest. So the priest wielded the Urim and the Thummim. So the king would ask a question and the priest would, you know, cast the Urim and the Thummim. Um, he expected to he hear from God in dreams or vi uh, dreams, like visions uh, while you're sleeping, uh, and also by a prophet of God. So a prophet would come to you and give you a word of right. God. And so then when we see, when we jump into 1 Kings 3 and 2 Chronicles 1, we see Solomon inquiring of God. So he goes to Gibeon where the tent tabernacle is because the temple hasn't been built yet. And he offers sacrifices and inquires of God through the priests. And then he expects to get an answer from God and how God chooses to answer him is a dream as he's sleeping that night. Right. So. And it's not just limited to those three because if the angel of the Lord is a physical appearance of some kind. Sure. Right. So you have a humanoid appearance, right? Mm -hmm. It's in, in, the, in a human form. Yeah. Which we um, see Joshua, for example, um, the angel of the Lord judges. appearing to Joshua back right. in, back in Joshua. And yeah, in, in Judges chapter two, the angel of the Lord appears and actually walks up. Moses in the burning bush place. is the angel of the Lord. Yes. Right. So, but at least we know, we know from first Samuel 28, what kings of this time period would the, expect. Would expect. They it's like expected a more normal. These, th these yes. three ways, Urim and Thummim, the dreams form. or visions, right. prophet of God. Right, That's right, what right. they expected. Yeah. The angel of the Lord is not coming all the time. But the idea here is that this is the common expectations. Right. As opposed to, uh, you should expect the angel of the Lord, like, anytime he talks to you. It's like, right. no, it's, that's not the case. Right. Uh, but there's another part to this question. Sure. I'm trying to wrap my head around. How do the Old Testament writers view this contact uh, through through God? Which God, yeah. Through which God would reveal his plans to earthly leaders? How did they view it? How did they envision it? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out the best way to, to answer this. Um how do the Old Testament writers view this context through which God would reveal his plans to earthly leaders? Um, I think that we've, we've kind of touched on it already. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that uh, as in terms of Old Testament writers, these guys are prophets, right? Like Samuel's writing Samuel, yeah. largely Gad or Nathan and probably the second of Second Samuel. Yeah. Um, they, so they are intimately involved in the king's lives anyways. So David... Right, wrote Psalms. So these people are all have intimate contact with God. So uh, I don't know exactly how to answer this questions. What do you think? I, I think it's the same way that I, I think like they wrote down these these expectations in First Samuel right. 28, for example. They're the ones who wrote down what was going on. So I, I think the answer is the, is the same. I think they envisioned God speaking to these kings in the same way. And, and as their unique... Like they right. had a unique okay. viewpoint because they were prophets of God. So they regularly received dreams and visions and words of God. So obviously they would have had experiential knowledge right. of this as well. I mean, when you look at the succession of people who are writing the Bible, these were prophets of God, you know, men called of God uh, to do, to write these words. Um, but uh yeah, so they obviously would have had a unique perspective from an experiential point of view, uh, but I think it's the same because they're the ones who wrote down that, uh, you know, Saul was looking for a dream. He was looking for a prophet of God to give him a word, or he was looking for the priest to be able to give him answers via the Urim and Thummim, right. uh, and none of those occurred. And then, and then they're the ones, again, who write down what 
Solomon did, the process that he went through. He went to a priest. He offered sacrifices on the altar of offering that Moses and the Israelites had built. Then that night he went to sleep and God spoke directly to him. God God appeared to him, we're right. told. Uh, so there's some sort of vision going on in right. that, in the dream. Right. So yeah, I think I think it's a similar answer, yeah. but I think that it is interesting to, to take a look, to try to think of it from their perspective, because they at least would have had experiential knowledge of this as well. That's right, yeah. I, I couldn't really wrap my head around the question itself, but I think you nailed it on the head. I think, I think that's where you were going with that question, yeah. David Marie. If not, please write us a comment or another email. And, and clarify, but I think that's where yeah. I think that's where they're going. That's good. Okay, right. so that brings us to our overarching big question that I want to discuss okay, go from on. our writing. So I want to discuss this idea of the Davidic covenant because at the beginning of David, with David, God comes and He creates a covenant with him. So how should we understand this Davidic covenant mm. as it weaves throughout throughout Scripture? Um, and Climaxes with Christ, right? Is Christ is the climax of the Davidic covenant? Yeah. yeah. Did you have anything you want to start with? Well, I think first of all we have to we have to uh, understand the Davidic covenant within the context of God's plan of redemption. So, very broadly speaking, we see that that God is not surprised by human behavior. That as soon as Adam and Eve sin, and uh, separate themselves from God. You know, in Genesis three fifteen, God prophesies that that someone will come who will who will crush the head of the snake. So there's this plan of redemption, the redemption of humanity by God, initiated immediately. And then as time goes on, we see this this plan take form and take shape throughout the history that the Bible records. So first through the Abrahamic covenant. So God chooses a specific family line through which he is going to deliver all, he's going to deliver all of mankind, right? So then, so then it goes, uh, you know, just generally there's going to be a deliverer. Then it gets more specific. It's going to come from the family of Abraham. And then we get to David and it gets even more specific. So not just from the broad family of Abraham, but now specifically, the Messiah is going to come through a line of kings, specifically the line of kings that are related to David. So from the Davidic dynasty. So So, so, that's how we need to understand it in a broad scale that, that when David makes, when God makes this covenant with David, he's saying that the Messiah is going to come from David's line. Therefore, David will always have an ancestor on the throne. Right. I think that's, the, yeah, that's... That's like the broad scale. Yeah, of course. So let us let me just read it, because uh, 2 Samuel 7, let's just read... Yeah. This one, some people might not even be aware of it. I'm assuming you've read, you ha- should have read your Bible. Should have read, yeah, but, I know. But if you haven't, let's just read it here. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. I'll start there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, speaking to Nathan, okay? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, speaking to David, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. That is now true. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they will, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. 
as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is what you were talking about here. Yes. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down in your, with your fathers, when you die, basically, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from, uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will dis- discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my de- steadfast love will not depart from him, as I, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with the vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot going on there. But long story short, as you said, is about the Messiah coming through. There is something that's interesting here, which we were talking about earlier, which I'll address again. Uh, it says here, which this might get some people off. There's other people who might be like, is this referring to the Messiah? Because look what it says. Uh, he, when he commits iniquity, we're assuming this is the Messiah, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it says he will commit iniquity. What's your take on this? Right. Well, I, I would say the immediate context of this prophecy is Solomon, right? It's going to be Solomon. Um, and the, the, and then the, and then the son of Solomon and then the grandson and, and, and on and on and on. So the initial context of this is David's physical line. Uh, so, I mean, you can take this, you need to take this literally. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, who the immediate one was Solomon. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. So Solomon builds the temple, right? Uh, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is where it's like, okay, well, Solomon's obviously not going to literally live forever, but there's going to be a, a line of kings that come from David and Solomon who will reign on the, the throne of Jerusalem. It's funny that we don't remember Jeroboam, but remember David and Solomon. Their names are... Yeah. They're stead, right? Their names are, like, are built into... Uh, our cultural consciousness. Like everyone knows who they are. And then Jeroboam comes, Jeroboam comes, everyone's like, who? Yes. Yeah, so it's like those two guys, it's just interesting because they're the great men of the earth that God said you would establish. Go ahead. Yes. Um, so I will be his father. He will be my son. We see that interesting relationship between uh, God and Solomon where God says to David, uh, Solomon is the one that I love and he is going to be the king. And then, and then God gifts Solomon with good gifts. Uh, which we're going to ta- talk about on our next weekend show because those good gifts go very bad. They go awry, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Uh, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, which certainly happens especially to the kings that follow Solomon, right? We see in that very next generation after Solomon, uh, Pharaoh Shishak invades the land and basically takes all of the wealth that Solomon had amassed. And, and then there's a lot of enemies going on here. So, uh, um, that whole being punished for iniquity, I don't see that 
as as Christ in the immediate context. I see that as the the physical line of David who were not Christ, because obviously Christ was without sin. He was without iniquity. But what but what is interesting uh, is. Um, uh, continuing on, my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. So God did not remove the kingdom away from Solomon, even though he was evil. So that right. promise came true. And it says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So we know that when the line of kings of David ceases, because they go into judgment into the Babylonian exile for 70 years, it is expected that a Messiah from the line of David will come and, and take up that throne, which of course Christians believe was Jesus Christ as the physical offspring of David uh, and the spiritual offspring of God coming in and becoming a king now reigning. Um, and, and his reign is not over. It's never going to end. There, there will come a time where there will be a new heavens and a new earth with Christ literally on the throne as he is now. Um, but I think it's really interesting to look at then this, this prophecy through the lens of Christ as a physical descendant of David as well and a legal descendant of David. So we see Christ does, is punished, not for his own iniquity, but for the iniquity of, of his creation, his his ancestry? people yes, yes. and his ancestry, the right. ancestry of David, because the, the 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 kings of David failed spectacularly right. in following God. I mean, you look at there's only a handful of kings who actually who came from David who actually tried to follow God. Only a handful of them. So right. many of the rest of them fell into idolatry. So Jesus is paying not only for the sins of the world but also for the iniquity of his fathers, for the iniquity of um, David and Solomon and Rehoboam. And I mean, go down the line right, all the way to Zedekiah. It's interesting because he says it's a double double meanings. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Yeah. So the stripes part is whipping. And that's that famous flogging scene you have. In, in it's really the, interesting it's how it all comes together. So it seems like this is like, like yeah, Christ is redeeming in that process the... The Davidic line from mm -hmm. their iniquities. Yes. Right, which is really interesting. Yeah. And um, he's essentially c cleansing the throne that he will then take. Right. So the he there is a double entendre. It's, it's explicitly referring to Solomon, but then and the descendants of Solomon. And yes. the descendants of Solomon, which the, which must include the Messiah. Yes. Right. That's cool. All right. Yeah. But there's other things too here that are, are related. So I got a bunch of verses here that are related to this Davidic covenant. So how should we understand it? Well, throughout, throughout as you know, Solomon went on, everyone was expecting a Messiah to come. Everyone was waiting for it uh, and expecting it to be through the, the line of David. So here we have even, this is a famous one, Isaiah 9, yeah. uh, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this kingdom can't end. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So you have this line, and we know this from Daniel with, with the rock that's made, cut off from the mountain with no, that's made by no human hands and it spreads across the earth, right? So you have this kingdom that's coming out from the Messiah of David, David's kingdom. And you have more, if I even go on to 11, verse, uh, Isaiah 11, verse 1, 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, mm -hmm. and a branch from his root shall uh, from his roots shall bear fruit. Mm -hmm. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And it keeps going on uh, yeah. right there about about what he's going to be like. Um, so he's supposed to be a once again a priest king. In the, to the utmost degree, like he's going to love God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and everything that you could possibly do. So that's what everyone's anticipating here, mm -hmm. a priest king. Uh, so as, so, I mean, from that grand scheme of things, uh, what you're really identifying here is, is you know, from that, from that grand redemption plan that God has, um, in the time of David, we get, okay, David's throne is going to last forever. So the, 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 the kingdom is going to last forever through David. The Messiah is going to come through David. But then as we go on in the time period of the kings, we see David's descendants, his progeny, fail so spectacularly and so miserably. And God still uh, enables them to stay on the throne until he brings judgment in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Uh, but in that time period where the, the, the family of David is failing in following God, and his law, we have these prophets like Isaiah who right. are now prophesying, no, 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 it's still going to happen, right. but it's going to happen in, it, it, it's going to be miraculous how this happens now. Because right. God God has promised that, that the throne of David is going to last forever. And here's how it's going to happen. Right. Right. It's going to happen. There's going to be a branch coming so, out. So you get this idea that the, the house of David is going to be cut off. So the tree is going to be lopped off. But from that stump that remains, a shoot will grow once again. It's right. going to be miraculous. The tree is going to come back to life. Right. And that's a, a Christian message, right? Yes. So, uh, but more than just that, so to look at this, you have you know, this priest king that's going to come. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that this whole book is written not to say from the from the view of a priest, but essentially from the view of from the view of a prophet. So we would say um, religion and politics don't mix, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And what you have here is something religious that's looking at political things. A religious figure being like, this is what politicians are doing wrong, essentially, in this sense. Mm -hmm. That's what the Bible's attacking them. That's the reason why Nathan can rebuke David. Like the the political is subservient to the uh, religious here. Yeah. By religious, I mean, you know, Christ, God, and all that stuff. Um, so here, when you have that in mind, that the priest is essentially um, uh, superior than the king mm -hmm. in, in a real way. Like they have different offices. They have different roles. But in terms of it, uh, what is integral to the priest being a true king, sorry, for the king to be a true king is that priestly heart um, to be a true king. So here, what you have here is other things that are related to this idea. And this is the, the keys of David. I don't know if you ever studied this part. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so here, I'll start off here with um, Isaiah 22, verse 22. Sure. Uh, and I will place on his shoulder, this is referring to one of the kings, the key of the house of David. He shall open and, not shall, and none shall shut it. And he shall, not, and he shall shut and none shall open. Mm -hmm. And I will fasten him like a peg in the secure place. And he will become a throne of honor in his father's house. Okay, so we have this key of David here, where like things can be opened and closed, right? And that is eventually related to, uh, you see this in Revelation, I think it's Revelation, um, uh, Revelation three, mm 
Yep. With the, with the Church of Philadelphia. Yep. And if there's an open, uh, there's a door that I should open and not shut. That kingdom's still growing through, right? So we're part of the Davidic kingdom, which is a really fascinating concept is that the Christians are grafted into the Davidic mm-hmm. covenant. And that's this idea of the adoption of sonship. It's like you will be a prince, right? Mm-hmm. The, the idea is that like when you die and you are, uh, you're saved for eternal life, you become a prince, a son of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you become in this Davidic line in a sense. So anyways, we have that opening, that key. The keys of David is important. And I know that's even likened to at times uh, to, to the apostles. Uh, you know, you shall, uh, you shall yeah, whatever you shall bind. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's symbolic of, of the authority of Christ that he that's then right. divvies out to his disciples. That's exactly right. Whatever yeah. you bind and have it should be loosed, right? Yeah. Right, it continues. So that's that. And I know this others at Jeremiah 23, verse 5, and also chapter 30, verse 9. This is a good one. And this carries on. Everyone likens, you know, uh, Christ to this figure, um, to this uh, priestly king figure. So even in, let's say, I'll go to Acts 13, 4. Acts 13, verses 34. Let me just get there real fast. We will all just stare at you awkwardly while you turn the pages. Of <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, I didn't have time to put it on my, my thing, so I'm just kind of going through here. That's okay. It's no big deal. Yeah. Taking our time, getting through the that's scripture. Right. All right. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, this is about Christ, right? God uh-huh. raised Christ from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy, sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in the psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and sought corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to, to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, every one of you who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. All right. So, and you even have later on with Paul in Romans saying part of his gospel is that Jesus is the son of David. Yeah. It's, so, you, so here's what's really interesting here. So the gospel itself is intimately tied to the kingdom of David. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Do you see? And that's something we forget. We forget like, oh, so, so, so what does it need to have? What do you need to have a kingdom? Well, it's, it's partly political. There's a king. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying here? So, but there's an order that's involved where the priest is superior than the king in a sense, because you need to have that heart of a priest. Well, in as much as the priest represents God well, to the king. Yeah, yes. Same with prophet. The function of prophet was also, you didn't have a king without a prophet. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. You, well, you have that priest-king merger. So that if there's a person, right. it's the priest, it's the same thing. Sure. But what I'm saying is that that office of of the priestly office mm-hmm. is essentially the moral epicenter uh, for the king. If the king is a priest, then it's all, it's, it's all done. It's, mm-hmm. there's, an, there's an irony I was thinking about. Plato longed for a philosopher king. He said, the, the, the world will always be killing each other until the world has a philosopher king. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Solomon comes around and nothing changes. Yeah. Um, but what the Bible's teaching is that you need a priestly king. Yes. Because that's and, what's going to change and the world. Let me, and let me put a caveat on this, however. Sure. That was actually outlawed in the Old Testament. It was not allowed because right. of human sinfulness. So the priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. 
and the kings yes. came from the tribe of Judah. Right. It was it was separated because of human sinfulness. And right. now we do see crossover where David uh, takes off his kingly robes and puts on a linen priestly ephod uh, to to dance and make music before God as they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. So he he takes off his kingly authority apparently to represent to. to symbolize the fact that God is king and David is but like a, a servant of, of and, God. So these offices in the Old Testament and, 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 and until Christ came were very much separated because it just, because of human well, sinfulness. And, then, and we see yeah. that this, this really went a long way in, in attempting to hold back human evil because how bad would it have been if, for example... Uh, Manasseh was also the priesthood. Now right. he brought judgment upon himself and upon uh, Jerusalem because he murdered the true priests of God and 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 murdered the prophets of God according to you know the the Bible specifically just says he filled Jerusalem with blood with innocent blood. But when you go back and you look into Jewish tradition, they talk about he was killing the prophets of God. He was killing the priests of God, which makes a whole lot of right. sense. But, so yeah, to, it was separated. But then but that's important. It's so important to say that they were separated because yeah. God purposely separated them. Yes. Knowing that they're going to merge. That to be a he was going to, yeah, in, in the Christ. person of Christ. Right, right. So, okay, so yes. you have this thing. That, in a sense, that directionality, I think is very, when you, when you see it, shows mm -hmm. the temporalness of the law. Yeah. Because the law is going towards something. And at that point... With the priest king, the laws fizzled. Yes. You have something that's. Do you see what I'm saying? The law. Uh, it, the, the Levites were the priests, and right. And then you have the king elsewhere in the line of uh, Judah. So, the two aren't related, and then yes. they become related, and then you have to ask yourself, okay, so now that they've come related, the law itself is no longer it is, is uh, fulfilled in that, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is really interesting. And it's interesting, too, to think that that's related to the gospel and how Paul talks about we're not bound by the law, right? Anyways. Well, and and this is why when you get into Hebrews, this is why the author of Hebrews, because this was a difficult concept right. uh, for for ancient Jews because they, they were used to the law and they were used to certain teachings on that. Right. So the author of Hebrews comes back and he justifies Christ's high priesthood and kingship by going back to Melchizedek in Genesis. Right. So we see this in Hebrews chapter 7 and in Hebrews chapter 8 and even in Hebrews chapter 6 a little bit. So, yeah, understanding that Christ is now the high priest and the king. Right. Which which is is again pulling back out to that plan of redemption where the kingdom of God uh God narrowed that first to the family of Abraham, narrowed it even more uh, to the the kingship of David, you know, the king the kings from David's line were going to rule over God's people, the family, the descendants of Abraham, and now in Christ, who has fulfilled all of that, reconciled human sin, right. the kingdom of God is now open much more broad to all of humanity. Right. And so we have this culmination of the plan of redemption. And now what is left, what we are awaiting is the return of Christ and the, and the creation of the new heavens and the, and the new earth, where we will be reconciled back to God uh, like our pre-fallen state. Right. 
So then you have the kingdom of God now is about the forgiveness of sins. Yes. Right. It's a big deal. The reconciliation of humanity to God so that we can once again stand in the presence of God, not because of our righteousness. Right. In fact, because of the acknowledgement of our unrighteousness right. and how we put on Christ's righteousness like clothes. Right. Just how God clothed Adam and Eve after the garden because their attempts at patching together clothes was not sufficient for survival in this earth. Right. So God now clothes us with the righteousness of God because our good works, our righteousness is wholly unsufficient to protect us spiritually or to in any way protect us from the environment that we find ourselves in, in the presence of God. So God will, like he clothed Adam and Eve for protection in the physical world, so he clothes us in the righteousness of God for the spiritual world. Right. And this is very good news. It's good. Very, very, very good news for us. Yeah. So. I think there's more to be talked about enough for today. But about, <laughs> we could talk about the Davidic covenant for a long time. Yeah, because the relationship of what that kingdom means. Yeah. And what does that mean for kingship today? I know we kind of addressed that last time, but I think that there's uh, there's more to talk about. Definitely. Right. But maybe not for today. Not for today. For another day. Another, for another day. day. Okay. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or future episodes, if you want us to address some of your um, questions or concerns about scripture that is still to come, please pop them down in the comment section down below or find our emails and email us. Until next time, happy reading and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.